Beloved congregation of the Lord, let us read again Matthew 16 and verse 19. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And would you read with me again in the first part of the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 31, found in the back of your Psalter, page 64. What are the keys of the kingdom of heaven? The preaching of the Holy Gospel and Christian discipline or excommunication out of the Christian church. By these two, the kingdom of heaven is opened to believers, and shut against unbelievers. The government of the Church of Jesus Christ is not a neutral matter. It's not a thing indifferent in which we can simply agree to live and let live. Indeed, we may recognize that how the Church is governed it may be something in which true Christians differ about. It is surely something about which we would say it is not cut to the heart of the gospel, such that if you are mistaken about one or another point about the government of the church, you are outside the faith. We would not say that. At the same time, we recognize that it touches upon the honor of our Savior Jesus Christ, the only head of the church. If he is a king, his laws are to be obeyed. If he is your king, Christian, and you yearn that not one of his laws concerning his worship and his church should fall to the ground. We want Christ to be lifted up in great esteem, honor, and glory. And so we take the command seriously that we love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind. Our mind. We apply our mind to search diligently in the word of God. That only rule of faith and practice for the true Christian church. We believe that the Bible gives definitive answers to the question of how the church is to be administered and governed. We may know whether we are in the will of Christ or not. And so it's our responsibility to know that. We began to consider this morning this whole matter of the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Began to discern what these are and what they are not. We saw how they are that spiritual authority committed unto the ministers of the gospel together with 
the ruling elders of the church. It's a spiritual authority which binds and looses the conscience. Lord, it brings the will of Christ concerning salvation into concrete expression as individuals are brought in confrontation with the eternal truths of Scripture and of his word. We began to consider this, but in this afternoon service, I wish to expand on it somewhat, particularly what the Bible teaches about the officers of the church, particularly the ministers and the elders, but we will see also the deacons included as well. Many reasons why you should give attention to this sermon, even if you are not an elder or deacon or minister. You see, surely you would recognize that if you are a member of this church, you'll be called upon to be involved in the selection of qualified office bearers. You may wish to know why is it that we conduct our um, leadership in that way? And how is it that we ought to think biblically about that responsibility? Likewise, as I say, it involves the honor of Christ and nothing concerning that should be indifferent to us. With the Lord's help, we will consider the officers of the church, called and qualified. The officers of the church, called and qualified. First, I would speak of the calling of the Christian, that according to the will and power of Christ, there are those appointed and gifted for this particular responsibility of having spiritual leadership within the church. And we will be going through a number of scripture passages, but just to begin to orient ourselves about the big picture, I would have you look in the back of your Psalters again, this time at the Belgic Confession. The Belgic Confession, Article 30, which as you see is a number of proof texts, but summarizes the big picture of what we would see concerning the biblical teaching of the offices on page 20 in the back of your Psalter. Article 30, concerning the government of and offices in the church. The Reformed Church confesses, we believe that this true church must be governed by the spiritual policy which our Lord hath taught us in his word, namely, that there must be ministers or pastors to preach the word of God and to administer the sacraments. Also elders and deacons who together with the pastors form the council of the church. But that by these means the true religion may be preserved and the true doctrine everywhere propagated. Likewise, transgressors punished and restrained by spiritual means. Also that the poor and distressed may be relieved and comforted according to their necessities. For these means, by these means, rather, everything will be carried out on in the church with good order and decency when faithful men are chosen according to the rule prescribed by St. Paul in his epistle to Timothy. Now, a wonderful summary there of these three offices. Now, some distinctions. First of all, we understand that there are offices not included here. We speak not of the 
old covenant offices, those people appointed to special responsibility in the church of the old covenant, the prophets who proclaimed the will of God, the priests who administered sacrifice, these are discontinued with the coming of Christ as he institutes the new covenant church. Likewise, we speak not here of those extraordinary offices of the new covenant. You think, for example, of the apostles themselves, the apostles who were witnesses of the resurrection, called upon to write the holy scriptures, and who would speak authoritatively over all the church, this office is discontinued, for they were specifically chosen by Christ himself. Likewise, there would be an office frequently mentioned in the New Testament called evangelists. People like Timothy and Titus, these are people who are emissaries, representatives of the apostles and their authority to the different churches. They likewise expired with the passing of the apostles. What is it that we refer to? We refer to those ordinary offices, those offices which are designed and appointed by the Lord to exist in perpetuity, continuously until the end of the age. And let me briefly summarize both in the morning sermon and in previous sermons, the scriptural warrant for each. Matthew 28, the Great Commission, go and disciple all nations, teach, baptize, and I will be with you always to the end of the age. This refers to a teaching office, a preaching office, where there are those called upon to proclaim the gospel and administer the sacraments. It exists to the end of the age in succession with the apostles. Therefore, we have a warrant for the, doc, for the office of the minister, sometimes called an elder or a presbyter, sometimes called a shepherd or a pastor, sometimes called a bishop or an overseer. Many different names. We will simply use minister as that which preaches and administers baptism in the Lord's Supper. Together with the ministers, there are deacons. And you will remember how it went, children, in the days of the early church. We read in the book of Acts, chapter 6, how there were these different groups in the church, some Greek-speaking Jews and some uh, Hebrew-speaking Jews and some of the one group had their widows and poor being neglected. And the apostles, who were both caring for the poor as well as preaching the word as ministers, they said, well, it's not right that we would leave prayer and the word of God to wait on tables. So it was that the Lord directed them to appoint men to the office of deacon, to care for the poor. They discerned those who had this special gifting of the Holy Spirit. They laid hands upon them. And so it was that there was this second office to join with the ministers. Likewise, we spoke briefly in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17. Let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially they that labor in the word and doctrine. From this, we learn that there are some 
presbyters or elders who teach and labor in the word and doctrine, and there are others who do not do so, but yet are accounted elders, for they rule with the minister in the congregation, shepherding the flock according to the word of God. And so it is that these three have a continuous operation throughout all ages of the Christian church. And what I wish to impress upon you is that these are not those who have put themselves in this office. It's not the case that they just desire to do this and then one day took it up. No. Where someone is validly in the office of minister, elder, or deacon, it is because God has called them there. God has placed them there. God has equipped them with his giftings in order to carry out that role. Let me speak about this in two ways. First, by analogy. Analogy. The apostle in the book of Hebrews speaks of the Old Testament priests, an office that's no longer in existence, but I wish you to listen with me as I read from Hebrews chapter 5. You can turn there if you wish. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 1 to 4. For every high priest taken from among men is ordained for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sin, who can have compassion on the ignorant and on them that are out of the way that he himself also is compassed with infirmity. And by reason hereof he ought, as for the people, so also for himself to offer for sins. So far, description of the qualifications and the role of the priest. He is to be compassionate. He is to intercede. He is to make sacrifices. And then in verse 4 we read, And no man taketh this honor unto himself, but he that is called of God, as was Aaron. We speak, of course, of a general calling of every Christian. Every Christian is called unto faith and holiness in the gospel of Jesus Christ. But the particular calling here is unto a special office. As it was with the priests, so also with the other offices of the church. Listen to what the prophet Jeremiah had to speak in his own day. Another argument from analogy. Speaking in Jeremiah 23, verse 31, concerning some of those who put themselves forward as prophets of the Lord, those who would speak for God. He says in Jeremiah 23, verse 31, Behold, I am against the prophets, saith the Lord, that use their tongues and say, He saith. What are they doing? They're putting forward their tongues and claiming to speak for God. Verse 32, Behold, I am against them that prophesy false dreams, saith the Lord, and do tell them and cause my people to err by their lies and by their lightness. Yet I sent them not, nor commanded them. Therefore, they shall not profit this people at all, saith the Lord. He didn't command them. He didn't send them. So they're going to be no prophet to the people whatsoever. What's the principle? If they're not called by God, they are worthless. They ought not to put themselves forward as prophets to the church. 
the same chapter, Jeremiah 23, verse 21, I have not sent these prophets, yet they ran. I have not spoken to them, yet they prophesied. What a fearful thing it would be to run when you have not been sent. To hurry forward, supposing you're doing something for the Lord, and all the while God does not approve of what you're doing whatsoever. Can we not see that that is very unsafe ground? Can we not see that it is entirely possible if we are not attended unto the scriptures that we could mistakenly assume that something that is done in the strength and the blessing of the Lord is in fact a human invention? Here's another analogy, not one of the old covenant uh, offices now, but the extraordinary office of apostle. Special, expired, no longer around, and yet we may learn something from it. For they, as well as um, those who are ordinary officers, still have the same calling. In Romans chapter 1, verse 1, Paul describes himself this way. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God. He was called. God wanted him to be an apostle. And so he separated him uniquely from all others unto that work. From even his mother's womb, he says in Galatians, he was uniquely chosen unto this. In Galatians 1 verse 1, we read a similar line. Paul, an apostle, not of men, neither by men but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. He's saying, I don't owe my calling or my office to any man, but to Jesus Christ himself, even to God the Father, the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. These are his qualifications. God wants him in that role. You know, I want to... Now, move from the analogy, these extraordinary offices and old covenant offices, to the ordinary offices, minister, elder, deacon. I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians 12. Most important passage, describing how it is that God, by his Holy Spirit, especially equips people for work and service in his church, 1 Corinthians 12, and begin reading at verse 4. Now there are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are diversities of administrations, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of operations, but it is the same God which worketh all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit with all. What is the point? God, the Father, Christ, the Lord, and God, the Holy Spirit, they, all three persons, are at work in the equipping of specific people unto the service of the church. The whole chapter is worth reading and worth studying. But let me skip down to chapter uh, 12, verse 28, in that same chapter, 28th verse. And God hath sent some in the church, first apostles, secondarily prophets, thirdly teachers, after that miracles, 
then gifts of healings, helps, governments, diversities of tongues. Now we could have a great discussion about those offices which are expired with the apostolic time and those specific, specific gifts that may not even be connected with an office. But we notice certain things. First, the apostles are mentioned there as those who are equipped and called by the Holy Spirit. Likewise, the prophets, probably designating those who had a specific prophetic gift to give a word from the Lord. But look here, teachers, teachers, those who would teach the word of God. Look as well, helps, helps, those who would give help to the needy, probably referring to deacons, governments, those who rule in the church, shepherd the flock of God, probably referring to ruling elders. And these, if you compare them to other passages, First uh, Ephesians 4 and other ones that describe the sending of these different offices, we see that the apostles are not a unique case as being specifically called. No, that everyone who had put themselves forward in the role of an officer must be called and equipped by the Holy Spirit of God. Let me make this uh, point in this connection. There is an internal calling. Someone is either equipped and furnished with the Holy Spirit or they are not. They are genuinely called or they are not. But likewise, there is always the verification of that. What is sometimes called the external call. As the church and the people of God recognize and select those who are so called, and thus the two go together. There's a harmony, the calling of God in the soul and the separation by the church unto that role. For one uh, point in uh, this argument, I would refer you to something we read in the morning in Matthew 18 and verse 17 where we saw that second place in which Jesus refers to the keys. First, he speaks, of course, about the stage of church discipline. Someone offends you, you go to them. If he will not hear you, take a second person. And then we read in Matthew 18, verse 17, And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. Tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as a heathen man and a publican, verily I say unto you, whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. There we see the administration of the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And here we see that those are administered by what's called the church. And in context, clearly those who are within the church and those who are representing the church. It's in the context of the church, the people of God, that the gifts are recognized. How utterly contrary to someone who would say, well, I'm, I'm called by God, but I'm not called by the church. No, they should go together. You're going to exercise the keys of the kingdom. Surely that you would be in the kingdom heaven, in the church. Likewise, I would see uh, Acts Chapter 13, verse 2. Even the apostles, Paul and his associate Barnabas, 
where they had an eternal calling to go on a missionary journey, they were ver that was verified by the church of, its, of their day. In Acts 13, verse 2, And they ministered to the Lord and fasted. The Holy Ghost said, Separate me, Barnabas and Saul, also called Paul, for the work whereunto I have called them. When they had fasted and prayed, they laid their hands on them and sent them away. Notice the harmony of that. Wouldn't that be wonderful? If there would be an audible voice of the Holy Spirit saying, I particularly want these people to serve as minister or elder or deacon. Well, that isn't a normal practice, but we do see the beginning of this principle that they two go together. Where there is the calling of the Lord, there's the calling of the church as well. But we see this uh, not through an audible call, but through more of an ordinary means. Once we come to the next chapter of Acts, Acts 14. So there you see that Paul and Barnabas are on their missionary journey in Acts 14, verse 23. And when they had preached the gospel to that city and they had taught many, they returned again to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, confirming the souls of the disciples and exhorting them to continue in the faith and that we must through much, much tribulation enter into the kingdom of God. And when they had ordained them elders in every church and had prayed, prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord on whom they believed. Now, what might, you might not uh, recognize as very significant if you're just looking at the English is that little word ordained in verse 23. And when they had ordained them elders in every church, every congregation. Well, the word in, in the Greek literally means stretching forth the hand, stretching forth the hand. And if you would look at how that word is used in other ancient sources, and you would see its use throughout the, the New Testament, seems to especially have, have a meaning that would designate stretching forth the hand in order to vote, in order to make an appointment. So if you have a gathering, someone needs to be selected for a particular role, there's the stretching forth of the hand, to raise your hand and say, I vote for this person. Now, it's not just a democracy. It's not like they're simply making the choice based on who they like or who has a better platform. No, you notice how, how it goes. There's the praying and there's the fasting. And there is the uh, consideration of the will of God. So it's a spiritual exercise. And yet it is mediated through that recognition of the congregation that these are to be appointed as elders. It doesn't really designate, are they ruling elders, or are they uh, preaching elders, or pastors, or ministers? But listen to what Dr. Gill says in his commentary on that passage. Among those that were converted, there were some that were honored with ministerial gifts, qualifying them to preach the gospel and take upon them the care of the churches. So Dr. Gill thinks they were, they were pastors or ministers, but be that as it may. These, the apostles, directed the churches to look out from among themselves, as in the case of deacons. So he's referring back to Acts chapter 6, where again, there was an election. There was a selection of deacons from among 
the, uh, the Christians, among the brethren. So, as in the case of deacons, an inferior office who, by joint suffrage or voting, declared their choice of them by the stretching out or lifting up of their hands, as the word here used signifies, and not the imposition of them. It wasn't the case the apostles just said, these are the men you have to choose. No, even they, the apostles, had them select those so gifted. Which expresses the great regard, says Dr. Gill, the apostles had to the order as well as the doctrine of the gospel and the concern that they had for the welfare of souls converted under their ministry by making a provision for them when they were gone. The apostles, you see, weren't going to be around forever, nor was it suitable to the needs of the church that the Holy Spirit would speak audibly every time somewhere in the world someone was called to be a minister, elder, or deacon. Instead, the apostles set the example that was to be followed, the local congregation discerning who is to be called and so selecting them for that office. Thus we see the apostle uh, Paul's words to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. And the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men, who shall be able to teach others also. So let me bring this all together under this first point. There is the internal calling where the Holy Spirit works this in the heart, that you are gifted to serve the church. And then there is the external calling as the church verifies and appoints someone to such an office. And I love how these two things are perfectly synergistic, perfectly harmonious in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 11, as the apostle says concerning himself, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which hath which was committed to my trust. And I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who hath enabled me for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus." He understood he himself was unworthy for this office, and yet he had been saved by grace and placed there by the Lord. There's such a sense that he understands that this is what he is to do, and yet he also understands that everything he has is coming from the Lord. He's the one who has gifted him for this. He is the one who has given an opportunity to serve. It's a hard thing to describe to someone. What is it to really have that calling, not only verified by the church, but to have it in your soul, to yearn to serve, to delight to serve, to know that the Lord has called you to that. What a blessing that is. And the two things should go together. And in one person, maybe the internal call takes time to be fully developed. And so the church has to really recognize and encourage and foster that, that yes, they are to serve. In another case, maybe there is a firm persuasion that they are called, and yet it may take some time for the church to recognize that. But in either case, we must say that two things must go together, a subjective call and an objective, an internal and an external 
So thus far we've seen calling. Next I want to speak of qualified. So uh, it's very important, congregation, that we would understand this. If it is indeed the Lord's will that the individual congregation would discern and recognize the calling, those who are called into this office, we must take care to understand what the Bible teaches. Listen to what 1 Timothy 5 verse 22 says. Lay hands suddenly on no man, neither be partaker of other men's sins. Keep thyself pure. Is it good to just put someone forward for an office just because they're available? It's not good. If you're hasty in it, then you are acting contrary to the purity of the church, contrary to the will of God. Don't hastily put someone forward for such an office. 1 Timothy 3, verse 6, where it describes those who are to have this office. Or, sorry, 1 Timothy 2, verse 6. No, 3, verse 6. Not a novice, lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must have a good report of them which are without lest he fall into the reproach and the snare of the devil. 1 Timothy 3, verse 10, and let these also first be proved. In all these cases, what you see is a note that there has to be great care, not a new Christian, not someone who has a terrible reputation, cheating and lying and swearing and and sleeping around that would be notorious even in the community. No, you're to take their reputation, you're to take their track record in spiritual things, and you are to give them the opportunity to prove themselves. These are the general principles that we're to take, so immediately we understand that we're not messing around. This is an important matter. The Lord cares who is in his offices. Let me lay out some principles, likewise, that we need to understand. First is this. The Bible teaches that men only are called to the offices of elder, deacon, and minister. Only men are called to this. And immediately we put ourselves in the minority. Surely that the fact that the great majority of churches today would ordain women to one or all these roles says that we are out of the loop, that we are backward. Well, let me simply say that our standard is the word of God, and we ought to hear what the word of God says about this. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12, we read, But I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over a man, but to be in silence. For Adam was first formed, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived. But the woman being deceived was in the transgression. Notwithstanding, she shall be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith and charity and holiness with sobriety. Well, clearly there's an argument from creation, Adam and Eve. The argument is this. In the context of the church, the woman is not to exercise authority, is not to teach. This is the plain sense of what the apostle is saying. It's not saying that women do not have a valuable role, not that they do not have a place of respect and honor, not indeed like we think of that married couple, Aquila and Priscilla, where a woman indeed exhorted Barnabas to be faithful in 
things of the scriptures in her role as a, a Christian woman. But we're talking about that official role, that authoritative role of the offices of the church. These, the apostle says, are excluded from, uh, from women and exclusive to men. The other passage, of course, is 1 Corinthians 14, verse 34. Let your women keep silence in the churches, for it is not permitted unto them to speak. They are commanded to be under obedience, as also saith the law. And they, if they will learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is a shame to women to speak in the church. If this would place ourselves in the minority today, then we ought to maybe trace many problems in our society to this root that many people who claim to be Christians don't believe what the Bible says on this matter. Why is it in our society today you have confusion about sex and gender? Little boys and girls being cut in their bodies on the assumption that when, men, when women are interchangeable, it's just based on your preference. Why is it that the standards of marriage between one man and one woman are depreciated? Why is it the roles, the roles of like a, a husband and a father, a, a wife and a mother, why are these depreciated? Why is there moral anarchy in the land? Could it be because the churches of our land have surrendered the authority of the Bible? I'll tell you, as one who was raised to believe the opposite position, Basically, the argument was something like this. That's just Paul's opinion. That was what we were taught. Well, you see, where Paul says something, sometimes you can just ignore him because that's just his opinion. Dear brothers and sisters, let us never get into that slippery slope. No, that trap door into the abyss of unbelief. Where something is preserved in the Holy Scriptures as a rule and standard for the churches, that is, to be believed and obeyed without question. Where, indeed, we don't make any apologies for the Word of God. Where we believe the Word of God to the uttermost, there is great liberty in that, not having to apologize for God. Understanding but submission to his will brings great joy, great clarity, great certainty. And understanding that those who would contest this and rebel against this, they resist not only a tradition, but indeed the word of God. Second, we would say complete allegiance to Christ. Not only they must be men, but completely allied to Christ. What was it? What was it that we heard that the Apostle Peter confessed? Who am I? Who do you say that I am, Peter? Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. He had faith and he confessed his faith. And how terrible it is that you'd have leaders in the church who don't really believe in Jesus. Unbelievers. Appalling. What great damage has come from people occupying positions of leadership in the church who are unconverted, unregenerate, dead in their sins. We don't imagine that just because we are conservative, reformed churches that it can't happen here either. We ought to be weary of the fact 
that if someone is unconverted and putting himself in such an office of minister, elder, or deacon, they cannot give an accounting of how they have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, whether it happened suddenly or gradually. They must be able to say, I know in whom I have believed. And their lives must be, give evidence of that. The allegiance unto Christ, it's paramount. 2 Timothy 2, verse 3, Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. There's great hardness, great difficulty, great affliction that comes from serving Christ. Surely we would understand that if you are going to enter into the office today, one of the questions you might have to ask is, am I willing to go to jail for Christ? Am I willing to be fined? Am I willing to lose livelihood? These are the sort of questions we have to ask. It's a hostile culture. We see the state making laws against the preaching about biblical sexuality. We see the state encroaching upon the crown rights of Christ. We see that there are the dark clouds all around us of increasing hostility to biblical principles. But even if we would think about the ordinary afflictions of the, of the office bearer within the church, day after day, loving, serving, tending unto the flock, surely we would say, whether it minister, elder, or deacon, there is great attacks of the devil that are surely to result. You do anything for the Lord, he is going to be right there to attack you, the devil. So it is that it's only those who are completely committed that will be able to endure. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12, For which cause I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. For the one who is all out for Christ, not to please man, but to please God. Not to serve man, but to serve Christ. The, the difficulties of the ministry or of the eldership or of the diaconate, these are but small things in comparison. But are you all out for Christ? This is what, what must be asked by anyone who would enter into this role. Personal integrity. This is really the high, uh, highlight of that whole chapter in 1 Timothy chapter 2. Do you agree where it speaks of the bishop or the overseer? Most likely referring to the minister in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, but applying likewise more broadly than that to the other offices, a bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, vigilant sober, of good behavior. What's the defining characteristic? Control of themselves, maintaining integrity in their marriage. Only one woman being faithful unto her in his thoughts, in his words, with his eyes. Verse 3, not given to wine, no striker, not greedy, a filthy lucre, a patient, not a brawler, not contentious. Not someone who's abusing alcohol to become drunk. Not someone who's out to get money for himself. Not someone who's lashing out and, and being uh, contentious and angry all the time. Someone who's self-controlled, in control of their own selves. And these attributes of integrity, don't they often show up in the family? That's prominent. 
First Timothy chapter two, verse four. One that ruleth well his own home, having his children in subjection with all gravity. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? And his finances. And in how he raises his children, how he treats his wife. What ought to shine forth? Holiness, Christian character, integrity, leadership, responsibility. First, two, first Peter 2, verse 11. Speaking now of the deacons, even so must their wives be grave, not slanderers, sober, faithful in all things. Where the man is so called to this, it should shine forth in the character of his wife, that the two should be united in this calling, that they would not be at odds, but there would be the adorning of the office in holiness by the entire family unit. And this is characterized by how decisions are made in these offices. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 21. I charge thee before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that thou observe these things without preferring one before another, doing nothing by partiality, not by favoritism, not by personal preferences, but rather all decisions made judiciously carefully, objectively, according to the word of God and the mission of the church. The integrity of the person shining forth in the execution of the office. Fourth, love, love. If there is not love, we are but a clanging symbol. If there is not love in the office bearer for the church, for the people of God, for sinners, and for the lost, then they are certainly not called to this. Titus 1 verse 8 speaks of the office bearer as a lover of hospitality, a lover of good men. Love is characterized here. Loving to show hospitality, invite people into our homes. Loving also to show uh, kindness unto others. It ought to be the case that uh, someone who is genuinely serving the church of Christ would have a heart for people. In Matthew 20, verse 25, Jesus talks about this principle. He says in Matthew 20, verse 25, um, you know that the princes of the Gentiles exercise dominion over them and that they are great. And they are a great exercise authority upon them. But it shall not be so among you. But whosoever will be great among you, let him be your minister. And whosoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant. Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. If you would have a position in the church, you will lay down your life for others. You will show the love of Christ by sacrificing yourself, your own preferences, your own time, your own energy, your own life will be laid down for the people of God. Finally, sound doctrine, number five. First Timothy 1, uh, sorry, Titus 1, verse 9. Holding fast the faithful word that he hath been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convince the gainsayers. Most likely a reference to the minister. He is the one who is to 
teach sound doctrine, to convince the gainsayers through his preaching. But likewise, you even read in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 9, about the deacons, that they are to be holding the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience. Or you hear 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13, Hold fast the form of sound words, which thou hast heard of me in faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. If we depreciate doctrine, we are not loving Christ. We are not loving others. What would you say about someone who says, I love others, I love others, but I don't care if someone puts rat poison in their food. Oh, also someone who doesn't care about doctrine. Doesn't care if the gospel is held in purity. Doesn't care if the law of God is proclaimed. Doesn't care if the worship of God is uncorrupted. Such people have not true love for souls or of Christ. Doctrine, the teaching of the word of God, must be pure. So we've seen these things. What is it that we are to look for among office bearers? We are to look for men whose complete allegiance is to Christ, who have shining personal integrity by the grace of God, who have love for the church and for people, who uphold sound doctrine. What remains? Dear church, dear Congregation, this must be stirred up. Second Timothy 1, verse 6, Wherefore I put thee in remembrance that thou stir up the gift of God which is in thee by the putting on of my hands. Are you currently serving in one of these sacred offices? Stir up your gift. Lean more on the Lord. Seek to be more committed, more filled with grace and power as you carry out your will. Are you not serving in an office? But maybe one day you may, brothers, give yourself in all diligence to show yourself approved of God. Desire to attain unto an office should the Lord call you unto it. Use all that you have unto the service of Christ where you are, and you may find yourself in such a position of responsibility. Are you the wife of one who may serve in the office, or are you the mother of someone who you are raising that may one day serve in the office, stir that up in them. Stir up your husbands, stir up your sons to earnestly covet these gifts, to aspire to be men of faith, men of integrity, men of zeal, men of purpose, for in this way the church of God will be upheld. Dear congregation, these things are the word of the Lord. Let us hold them fast. Let us Hold them with all integrity and firmness that in this way the Lord may bless us and continue the true religion among us for generations to come. By his grace, 